go. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come to you. We need you. We need you to open our eyes. We need you to speak to us through your spirit this morning as we open the word of God. I thank you, Father, that you have really written us a love letter called the Bible. Amen. And how it just reveals so much about you and you, who you are and your love for us. And I thank you that we can have this letter and read it at any time. I thank you for providing the church with teachers who are able to explain your words to us. And of course, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill me, empower me for the purpose of building up Bible Chapel. Lord, speak through me to put the spotlight on Jesus Christ. And may he be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, believe it or not, it's like we've been on this verse for three weeks, it seems like. Well, we looked at it briefly two weeks ago, and then we looked at what a capital campaign was. We'll actually break this verse down and be done with it and go on to the next verses after this. But Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 24, if you would uh, open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 24. It is difficult, the more I, I study the Bible and the more I learn of the importance of learning to you know, trace the, the authors, in this case Jesus, his thinking, his reasoning, his, the way he, his line of thought, this passage kind of doesn't make sense really until you really understand some symbology and what's going on here as it relates to treasure. But let's just take a look at it and we'll dive right in. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And we're going to talk this morning about three singular properties. The first is a singular treasure. Now, as you may know from the adult Sunday school class, moving over the history of the church, there was an emperor by the name of Diocletian, a Roman emperor. Uh, during the time of his persecution of Christians in Rome, the Roman authorities uh, would break into churches to loot their treasures. And one story goes of the Roman authorities breaking into a particular church in which the Roman prefect confronted a saint by the name of Laurentius. And said this, show me where your treasures are at once. Laurentius pointed to a group of widows and orphans who happened to be eating a meal. And he said, 
There are the treasures of the church. There are the treasures of the church. Now, since we are called to store up treasures in heaven, I thought it'd be good to know just exactly what are treasures in heaven. And before we take a specific look at what the Bible says about treasures in heaven, I just wanted to start out with a basic giving principle that I won't have to state because it's so obvious as it relates to the giving of our treasures. Just sit back and listen to some of these verses here, and you'll see a pattern very clearly emerge. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. In other words, be willing to give God all of your wealth. Now, what is your wealth? What is your treasure? It's not everything. It's the extras, the luxuries, the wealth you have. You have to survive. You need your necessities. That's the next thing he's going to talk about, starting in verse 30 or 25, where he says, don't worry about the necessities, right? I'll provide for you. I know what you need. So your treasures, your luxuries, the extras, be willing to give God all your wealth and now the first of all your income. That, that would be your regular giving. Give the first portion of it. What will the result be? The result of your investment will be that you get this. Your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You're going to get it all back and more. See that? How about this, Proverbs eleven twenty four? There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. So a farmer, they scatter seed, right? They throw down a little seed, the scattering, yet they get a whole crop. So the more you scatter, guess what? The more you receive. So the generous soul is blessed with abundance. But, as the text said, the one who withholds what is due, he becomes poor. You've seen a pattern here so far? In the New Testament, Jesus restates this same giving principle this way. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So you give to God, and God returns to you. Well, how much does he return to you? It's not just a little bit, folks, but it's a good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over. In other words, God returns to you more. But notice this. Because the rest of the verse says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So there is a measured return. God only gives you the return on what you've invested. So if you don't invest a lot, you won't get a lot in return. You invest a lot with God, you will get a lot in return. Now, the Apostle Paul understood this giving principle as he wrote to the Corinthians. You recognize this first, I would think. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, 
And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So you see the idea. Being generous, giving to God, you will get a nice return on your investment. Okay? So what specifically are treasures in heaven? Because if we're supposed to store up treasures in heaven, well, how do I do that? What are treasures in heaven? Well, let's look at what the text says. In Luke 12, 33 and 34, which is a parallel passage to Matthew 6, this is what we find. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Sound familiar? Okay. So sell your possessions. What are your possessions? Is it your luxuries or is it your actual necessities? It's your luxuries. So sell all those, not your necessities. In other words, be generous to God. Be willing to give to the needy when the opportunity arises, presents itself. And in doing so, what happens? You provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. I.e., what? You're laying up treasures in heaven. And by the way, as the text says, it is a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. It's a guaranteed return on your investment. And Roseanne isn't here, and she, but she reminded me of this last week. Roseanne Donnelly, she said this, that you cannot give God. That's what she's learned. You just cannot give God. Mark 10, 21 says this about the rich young ruler. Jesus looked at him felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So again, we see the same principle. The rich young ruler had more than he needed. Now Jesus didn't say sell your necessities. Instead, Jesus said sell your possessions, what you stockpiled. Because beyond the necessity... We should be willing to give to one who has a need. Do you hear me on that? Like you, you, a necessity would be, for example, if you have to drive to work, is a car a necessity? Pretty much, yeah. Do you need a, is a shelter, a, a home, dwelling, a necessity? Yes, okay. But the extras that you don't need, you should be willing. Beyond the necessity, we should be willing to give to one who has a need. Now, when everyone turning your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to look at the same concept, the same principle, and get another idea specifically of what laying up treasures in heaven is. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Once again, the lovely sound of the pages of the Bible being opened and turned. First Timothy six seventeen through nineteen. This is where I need a good joke, a quick good joke for the people that are watching online that are waiting, you know. We're all there? 
Very good. Verse 17 to 19, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So now, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Folks, who is that? Everybody in here should raise their hand. That is us. If you don't think it is, travel to another country. And you will see. That is us. Now he says, not to be conceited. In other words, don't let your bank account, your 401k, what you've accumulated, don't let it make you proud. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't put your confidence in your accumulated wealth. It is so easy to do that. He says, don't do that. But put your confidence on God. What does God do? Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So we have the wealth, see that? But we're not to be proud of it. We're not to trust in it, but what are we to do with what we have? Enjoy it. See, he says enjoy it. What did Solomon write in Ecclesiastes about life? It's, life is just it's vanity, it's meaningless. So it's best to just find out what you can do in your world, in this world, enjoy your work, enjoy what you have, and then in the end, what's going to happen? It all goes away, right? That's why he says life is meanness in some way. So he sums everything up by just fear God, obey him. And the same thing here, enjoy what you have. This is what, what Paul is saying here. Now, what are we to do with this wealth? That's verse 18. Do good. See that? Do good. Well, how do we do good? What's it say? By, no, it says, by, read the text. By being rich in good works. Now, what are good works? Be generous and ready to share. You see that? That's how you store up treasures in heaven. With what you have, be ready and be generous to those who have a need, to the causes of God. So it's just plain to see that the consistent message of the Bible in regards to our wealth is we are to share it as opposed to what? Hoard it, to stockpile it. And you know why you can share it and you can be a generous, even an aggressive, generous sharing person? God will take care of you. He owns a cattle on a thousand hill. He can replenish what you give. Now, what is the result of this view of our riches? Well, let's look at verse 19. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now, what does this passage mean? Well, the word storing up there, guess what? It's the same word in Matthew 6, the Greek word thesorizo, used in Matthew 6, 19 to 20. It means treasuring up treasure. So what does it mean then to store up treasure in heaven? It means to share the riches God has given to us. And the result being, this is so neat, that we lay a good foundation for the future. 
that we take hold of that which is life indeed. Now, that's a key phrase. What does that mean? It means that we, when we're generous with our wealth, with our treasure, eager to give, we open ourselves to the full potential of all that eternal life can mean. That's what it means to take hold of that which is life indeed. You want to experience the fullness of eternal life now because you'll experience it when you actually are in heaven. You want to experience at least a part of that now, the fullness of that now? What are you to do, folks? Be generous. Share. That's how you partake of the divine nature, as Peter would say. That's how you bring heaven to earth. So think of it this way, and I love this. The more I send ahead into future glory, the greater the glory when I get there. You follow me on that? The more you invest in the eternal, the greater the glory when you experience the eternal. So the greater your investment, the greater the reward. Now turn your Bibles to Luke 16, verse 9, because this is a great passage I want you to see. It further identifies. It's an obscure passage. Maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't. But it speaks to storing up treasures in heaven. Luke 16, verse 9. This is what it says. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Anyone as close as I was until I studied this this week? Because I was like, what does this mean? All right? But what does it mean? Well, money, or your treasures, is an unrighteous commodity. Okay? It's not bad. It's not that money's evil, but it is what? The love of money that's evil. Money is just neutral. It has no righteous virtue. It's an unrighteous commodity. So now, here's the thing. As an investor, this is what we are as stewards, as long as you've got an unrighteous commodity, Paul or Jesus is saying, use it for righteous gain. Well, how? It says here, make yourself friends who receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, what does that mean? It means invest your money in the souls of people who someday will greet you in thanksgiving when you step into heaven. In other words, you can invest in a missionary. Invest in some ministry that is actually reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? God won't forget. He watches everything. And so when you pass this life to the next, there are people who are going to be greeting you that are there because of your unrighteous commodity. And guess what? You're taking an unrighteous commodity and have flipped it to give you righteous gain. And you experience that when you're in heaven and all those people greet you. Isn't that neat? So the question for the citizen of, of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is this. What are you going to do with your treasure? What are you going to do with your treasure? Because whatever you accumulate here, 
you lose. <laughs> this body of yours, you lose. If you can afford it, it'll go back in a box in the end. But whatever you send ahead by investment in the lives and the souls of those around you, you gain forever. Now that is wise investing, amen? Now there's a proverb that summarizes this section of the sermon on treasures in heaven. It says this, whoever is generous, it's Proverbs 19:17. you'll get to sermon, so don't worry about it. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay him for his deed. Now, what is the basic implication of a loan? If you need a loan for a house, what's the implication? That you're going to pay it back, right? So what is God saying here? If you're generous to the poor, if you, whoever is generous to the poor, you are lending to who? God, to him. Well, the question becomes, of course, who are the poor? Now, Jesus makes this interesting statement that applies here. I'm just going to read this to you. It's from Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Then the king, meaning Jesus, will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. That's the definition of who? People need the poor. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come for you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even least of them, you did it to me. So God so identifies with the poor that he sees giving to the poor as lending to him. And he will repay you generously. Well, how? Blessings in this life and in eternity. You will reap eternal dividends. So don't invest your treasure in the temporary, i.e. in earth. Invest in eternity, i.e. in heaven. Because that's the heart of of the matter. So now we know, I would think you guys would, would understand what treasures in heaven are. So what's left? What's left is a choice to make. There are two treasures that we can invest our wealth in heaven or on earth. Now, why should we choose to store our treasure in heaven? Because what does Matthew 6 say? Because in the earthly treasure, moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. But in the heavenly treasure, there's no moth or rust and thieves don't break through and steal. Thus, a citizen of his kingdom does not store up treasures on earth. In fact, a citizen of his kingdom is known by his or her generosity. I mean, the more you study this, the more you see. How do people know that we are disciples? Well, love for one another, right? 
Also by a, a holy lifestyle, right? By forgiving, right? Have you ever thought that people will know that you are a citizen of God's kingdom by your generosity? And this is what he's saying here. By being generous, they show they are storing up treasure in heaven. So that's a singular treasure. Let's talk about a singular vision. Look at verses 22 and 23 of Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus continues his thought on wealth. And here he describes two visions. This is a new part of the sermon for you. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now this, at first take, when you read this, what does this have to do with wealth or with money, right? Let me answer that question for you, because this is absolutely fascinating passage that I think that you will find it'll blow your mind away. It blew mine away. So strap yourself in. Let's get ready for this. So in order to understand these two verses, you can't forget that Jesus has been talking about the heart throughout his Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? Here's a reminder. Blessed are the pure in heart. Remember that? Matthew 5, 8. Where does murder begin? In the heart. Matthew 5, 21, 22. Adultery begins in the heart. Matthew 5, 27, 28. Our giving and praying and fasting are to originate out of a sincere heart. Right? Matthew 6, 1 through 18. And of course, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So to further illustrate the heart, Jesus used the example of the eye. So when you see the word eye, think of an illustration of the heart. Now stay with me here because i got to go with another illustration of the eye that Jesus is using here. Why don't you see that the eye becomes a continued illustration of the heart. Now, the illustration of the eye as a lamp, it makes no sense until you understand that the eye is not the source of light in the body. So when you think of the eye as a lamp of the body, if I had a lamp up here, I would pull the chain, what would happen? The light would come on. But that's not what he's saying that the eye is, okay? He's saying that the eye is that which brings in light, so to think of the eye as a window, or as in your eye you have a lens, right? Carol, for example, had cataracts, and it affected her vision. She couldn't see things clearly. Colors were, were muted, right? You remove the cataracts, you're seeing things clearly again. So the eye is like a lens, but think of it as a window, okay? So, you with me so far? So if your eye or the window is clean and clear, the whole house or the whole body will be full of what? Light. Very good. But if your eye, i.e. the window, is bad, meaning it's, it's, it's blacked out, or for our purposes, the blinds are down, okay? Then no light comes into the house, i.e. no light comes into the body, and the house or the body will be full of what? Darkness. And that's the way it is, Jesus is saying, with the heart. See, if your heart is toward heaven, it lights your entire spiritual being. If your heart is toward earth, the blinds come down on your spiritual perception, 
and you don't see spiritually as you should. Let me give you an example. When I was 30 years old, I started wearing glasses. How did I know I needed glasses? I don't even know if I've told you the story, Erica. The first event that tipped me off that my eyes were going bad was when I was at a student conference at one of these large hotels. It was full of conference rooms, and we were playing a game of hide-and-seek. Now, the goal of this version of hide-and-seek was different, though. Uh, One person hid, and when you found that person, the two of you hid, and so on, until the last person looking for you, you guys, uh, they were the one who lost. So what happened? Well, in this instance, I was with a group of students. We were looking for a, a, a student or students that were hiding, and we went into this darkened conference room full of tables with skirts around the bottom. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and I looked under the table, and I saw nothing. So our group left, and eventually the game played itself out, and it ended. The students who were hiding, they were shocked, though, that I didn't come to them and join them. And I said, well, why? And they said, we were under the table, and you looked right at us. I mean, your face was right there. But you told everyone else we weren't there. You see, I, I couldn't see them. Of course, I was later to discover after the, an eye exam that I have a, a nearsighted astigmatism that requires corrective lenses. But my eyes were going bad, see, and affected my ability to what? See clearly. I remember when I put my glasses on, was driving for the first time at night, night became open to me again. But there's something about these verses about the eye that I want you to see that I don't want you to miss. Again, think about the eye as a window, and it's an illustration of the heart. This is going to tie everything together about wealth. And this is, you only get this if you do a lot of studying. But this is absolutely fascinating. The word light in verse 22 means literally illumination. And it refers to perception and understanding. I mean, you've heard the phrase, the light bulb went on in my mind. And what do you say? I now see and understand, right? You've experienced that and you've used that phrase before. Light is always a figurative symbol or or word picture of what? Understanding spiritual truth. Remember Jesus said, that a, light, a great light has dawned in the darkness amongst the Gentiles? What does that mean? It's not just referring to Jesus Christ. It's referring to the light of understanding of spiritual truth. You with me so far? So that's what light is. Light always means truth or understanding. Now the word clear, and this is so neat, in verse 22, it literally means this, single, thus Singular vision. But figuratively, it means clear. Does even version of the Bible say single when it says that about the eye? No, it says the eye is what? Clear. But that's a figurative understanding of the literal word single. But that word, clear, it comes from a Greek word, which means this, now watch this, liberally. That's the root of the word, liberally. And it's used that way many times in the Bible. In James 1.5, you read this, God who gives liberally. So it's a word that really just means generous. 
So Jesus is saying this then, if your eye or your heart is clear or generous, see, if your heart is generous, your life will be full of light. You catch me? Your life will be flooded with spiritual understanding. You'll perceive and understand spiritual truth. So in other words, you, you follow me here? Spiritual understanding, spiritual perception, and understanding spiritual truth is absolutely dependent upon what? A generous heart. Let me illustrate this through another story that happened to me. When I was fundraising as a missionary, I would be referred to people who attended church and had the financial means, at least the people that were referring them thought they did, to support me as possible donors. Now, out of these referrals, I would make phone calls every Sunday night for hours and set up about four to five appointments, if I could, a week with these prospective donors. And I would usually drive to their homes in the evening and spend an hour or so getting to know them and delivering my presentation. Now, I had a routine of how to control the conversation, not because I'm a control freak, I wanted to honor the amount of time I was taking up. So I would try to control the conversation through this routine. So I would greet them, we would begin to build rapport, then I begin by sharing my testimony of how I came to faith in Christ. I would then ask them to share their testimony. And then when they finished, I continued with my presentation. Now, you can imagine during all those visits, and there was, you know, you know, hundreds of visits, I learned how to identify if a person had, you know, any spiritual depth, if they were superficial or if there was a, they were really genuine. And you can tell when you talk to people about how, about their life and their relationship with the Lord. On one visit, I pulled up to an expensive home in Hudson, Ohio, it's a very wealthy town with a luxury car in the driveway. Now, this was like a, most of the homes in Hudson. It wasn't the biggest home I'd been in, but it was a very, very nice home. And upon entering the home, I walked down a short hallway that opened to a large room with a wall of windows overlooking a pond. And the house was decorated with fine furniture. And I sat down on an expensive couch and I began building rapport with this couple. And after sharing my testimony, I asked about their testimonies. And the husband shared a story to this day that I will never forget. This man was an executive at Firestone in Akron, Ohio. Firestone, you know, cars, tires, stuff like that. Wasn't too far from Hudson. He wore a suit and a tie. He carried a briefcase to work and he drove a luxury car back and forth from the office. But one day he heard rumors of a possible restructuring at Firestone that meant the elimination of his job. And so he drove home in his luxury car, and after entering the house, he immediately fell on his knees and cried out to God, saying, Lord, please spare me. I don't want to lose my job. But what he meant, really, was the loss of his job meant the loss of all that he had accumulated, including his house and car. Now his job was spared. 
Now, I asked this man to share his testimony of becoming a Christian. He shared a story of how he retained his wealth. I was immediately struck by two impressions. This man had no spiritual depth. Even though he attended church, he was at best a superficial Christian, if indeed he was a Christian. And he was not, number two, he was not going to support me financially. And I concluded my presentation by asking for, remember, the one, two, three, or four dollars a day, or whatever amount you can give. And a few days later, at a scheduled time, I called back for his decision, and he declined. Now, here was a man who was very, very wealthy. He had a beautiful home with a gorgeous view, luxury cars, and fine furniture. And a few years earlier, God had answered his prayer and spared his job so he could continue to stockpile wealth. And this man could not part with $3 a month. Folks, that's $1 a day. He could not give back to God. But why? Where was his treasure? In earth. And because of that, his greed pulled the blinds down over his eyes. And he had almost no spiritual perception and almost no spiritual understanding of truth. And it's revealed, by the way, his money was his God. Let me put the point of this story in another way. So maybe we get this. Until you take care of your view of money, you will never be trusted with spiritual understanding. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's exactly Luke 16, 11. Just listen to this. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, what is unrighteous wealth? It's money, the unrighteous commodity. If you haven't been faithful in the use of that, meaning you haven't stored up that treasure in heaven, you're storing treasures in earth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Remember, unrighteous wealth is money. If you don't know how to take care of money, why would God commit to you the true riches? Blessed are those who understand the parables. Remember that? It was given to the apostles or the disciples. That was real understanding. That's real riches. I mean, folks, I, I cannot say this enough. Jesus is saying that how we manage our wealth is very urgent when we get this right, and it's more important than we may think. It may be blinding us to spiritual perception and understanding. That's exactly his point in Matthew 6, 23. Look at this. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, the word bad there literally means evil. So you may have that translation. It's evil. Well, have you ever heard of an evil eye? Husbands, you know you receive the evil eye from your wives, right? You know what that is, and vice versa, right, wives? But what does it mean that, to have an evil eye? Well, let's go to the Bible and find out. Just listen to this, Deuteronomy 15, 9. Talks about when you have a slave and it's coming to the year of Jubilee. And what would happen at the end of the year of Jubilee? 
the slaves would be freed. And he says that you are not to have an evil eye towards them. Listen to this. Beware lest, this is Deuteronomy 15, 9, beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of release is at hand and your eye be evil against your poor brother. Now the word evil there, if you look at the, I think it's the English Standard Version, says this, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. It says, and you give him nothing and he cry out to the Lord against you and it becomes sin among you. So evil here literally means It means grudging. It means you're stingy. It means that you are ungenerous. You're reluctant and ungenerously grant this slave his freedom. And God says, I don't like that. Don't do that. It's a wicked thought in your heart. In fact, if that slave cries out to me, it will be a sin against you. Or how about Proverbs 28, 22? A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. So you, you rush to accumulate wealth and you end up ungenerous, grudging, and blind to reality. And so, folks, now we see the contrast. You have two treasuries, one in heaven and one on earth. Wherever you put your treasure, that's where your heart will be. And if your treasure is in heaven, you're going to have a generous heart, And that generous heart is like a clear eye that floods your life with spiritual perception and understanding of the truth, which are the true riches. But if your treasure's in earth, you're gonna have a greedy heart. And that greedy heart is like a darkened eye. You're pulling the blinds down over your window. And it prevents you and your life from receiving spiritual understanding. And what what are you left with then? A darkened understanding. And who has a darkened understanding according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians? Unbelievers. They are darkened in their understanding. They do not understand spiritual realities. See, so you're left with a darkened understanding. Now watch this. That's the point of the last part of verse 23. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I mean, how great, how complete is the darkness of one who should see spiritually, but pulls a blind down through his own greed? You know people that you've seen in church that are, just don't give much. Their, their eye is bad. It's stingy. They don't get it. They're, they're putting their treasure in the earth. So do you now see and understand the, the call of Jesus here? He is calling the citizens of his kingdom to an undivided, exclusive laying up of treasure in heaven. How you handle your money is the key to your spiritual understanding. And I bet, like me, you probably didn't really know that. And that's the message of verse 22 and 23. And so the question is, what vision will you choose? You choose where you put your treasure. You choose what you're going to see. And now you have a final choice. Who will be your master? Verse 24. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Well, why can't I serve two masters? Because the word serve in this verse is the word for bond slave. And slavery, by definition, it means single ownership, full-time service to your master. So to be a bond slave, you are the property of a master, and you are to be constantly, totally, entirely, 100% devoted to obedience to that one master. It would be impossible to serve two different masters. So God can only be served with a single-minded, exclusive devotion. The temptation of money, it's like a God, and it is too tempting. You, we all know that. It was a radical devotion to God. And here's the thing, if you try to serve both, you'll eventually hate one and love the other. Well, how does that work out practically? Well, there are those who are trying to serve God in money, and they hear a message like this, one I'm preaching today from any number of preachers or speakers, and they've accumulated wealth that God's given them, but they're not giving to God's causes or those in need. And when hearing this message, they begin to resent God's absolute claim in their lives. Because one master says, give generously. The other master says, selfishly hoard. See, the orders of these two masters, they're diametrically opposed. You must make a choice. You must be single-minded. You have to have a singular treasure, a singular vision, in a singular master. This is a, what he's saying here, this is a radical call to the lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of your life, specifically what we're talking about this morning, with money, with your wealth. I love this phrase. I put this up there because it's, it's you can see this. J.C. Ryle said this, singleness of purpose is the greatest secret of spiritual prosperity. So it's the absolute focus of a single treasury, a single vision, a single master. That makes you spiritually rich. Now there is a line from the hymn, Be Thou My Vision, that perfectly illustrates what Jesus is saying. Remember this? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Now this got me thinking, you know, what's the story behind this hymn? And I'm going to close with this, and we're going to close with this song this morning. But this hymn begins years, hundreds of thousands of years ago, with St. Patrick. He was just 16 years old when pirates, pirates kidnapped him and sold him into slavery into Ireland. This caused him to enter adulthood knowing the Gaelic language and Irish customs. But while there, he also became a Christian. And years later, he managed to escape and return home to his family in England. Now, while most would have stayed home forever, Patrick chose to go back to Ireland and become a missionary. Now, what does all this have to do with Be Thou My Vision? Well, on Easter Sunday in 433 the local Irish king issued a decree in observation of a pagan, pagan druid festival 
that prohibited anyone from lighting a flame or candle. Patrick, risked, Patrick refusing to honor anyone but Christ stood against the king. And that morning, Patrick risked his life by climbing to the tallest hill in the area and lighting a huge fire. As the ancient people, Irish people, woke up, they could all see Patrick's defiance of the king. Patrick wanted to show the world that God alone deserves praise. Now, years later, an unknown composer wrote a melody in honor of Patrick's heroism called Slain, S-L-A-N-E. Slain, the now-forgotten composer, named it after the hill where Patrick shined his light. It's called Slain Hill. People still recognize the tune today, but eventually the melody fell into obscurity. The lyrics share a similar story. Tradition tells of a 6th century saint named St. Dalin Forgel. He wrote a Gaelic poem entitled Raptu Mobile. I have no idea how to say this. In honor of St. Patrick. And as the years passed, Slain and Raptu Mobile were forgotten. The authors once known faded away into the fogs of time. But in 1905, nearly 1,500 years after St. Patrick lit a flame on Slain Hill, the forgotten hymn reemerged from the mists of time. Mary Byrne, a 25-year-old university student, discovered a 14th-century copy of Rop Mobile and translated it into English for the very first time. In that moment, the now hallowed lyrics, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, sprang from the forgotten pages of time and into the modern world. Later in 1912, an Irish woman named Eleanor Hull set the words to music, and the melody she set it to was none other than Slain, the medieval tune written in honor of St. Patrick. Now, the hymn became famous overnight and appeared in its first hymnal in 1919, and in 2019, the world celebrated the 100th anniversary of the modern version of Be Thou My Vision. That's from Pastor Steve Angus of Baby Bible Church. I found this information. But as we close this morning singing this hymn, I want you to pay close attention to how it speaks to a, of a singular treasure, riches I heed not, a singular vision, Be Thou My Vision, in a singular master, thou and thou only, first in my heart. Amen? Amen? Let's close with that song. And I pray that this would be our heart. Be singular with your treasure. Please rise with me. Let's close with Be Thou My Vision. And Don, you can come up and make the announcement.